Okay, welcome back to part two. What I suggest you do between now and next week, because we're going to return to these same chapters, is try and read chapters 6 to 19, more than once. Because I can't read the whole lot tonight. Well, I could, but I wouldn't be able to say much else. And I, Well, maybe that's what you prefer, I don't know. But, but in some ways... These chapters get us to the heart of the matter and, for some, to the heart of the problem uh, with this book. Uh, But the first thing I want to say, whatever you do, is do not lose your heads. All right? I know you have no intention of doing so, but please keep your head and keep everything that we've thought about so far right at the forefront of your minds. In particular, the essential fundamental message of the crucified Christ who has won. So as we saw last week, the message of the book is the Lamb has won. That's the point. And if you manage to keep your eyes fixed on that, then actually in the midst of a lot of the sort of tricky things and um, uh, nitty-gritty problems, you will keep sane and uh, you will keep clear on what this book is about But basically, these are the chapters where people go to town in trying to interpret them. And I could spend days just giving you a a list of, or a a taste of various different approaches um, that people have come up for them. It might be a bit entertaining. I'm pretty sure it would not be edifying. And in fact, you would probably find it pretty depressing in the end, not at least because you'd be confused. But let me just give you a little flavor of what some people have said. Now, please, let me stress at the beginning, these are not necessarily my views. I found this on a website which claims to take you verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And it's incredible. If you do a Google search for the book of Revelation, you will find zillions of stuff. This is what one verse said, talking about the sign of the beast. Let me just repeat, this is not my view. (laughs) But I quote directly, The image is the sign made by Catholics, made with the right hand from forehead to the lower chest, then across the chest in an image of the cross, saying the name, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is blasphemy when this church stands for none of these. They actually abolish the Holy Spirit baptism, evidenced by speaking in tongues. The forehead mark is caused by baptizing or pouring on water on the forehead, often three times in Catholic churches. Note that John the Baptist and the apostles always use full immersion in water. Okay, that's one view. Or let me take this... I won't mention which book it's from, but this takes chapter 9 of Revelation, and this was a very, very influential book that this is quoted from, which was published around the world and translated into many languages. But this is what this book says of chapter 9 with the plague of locusts and things. It says this, The locusts in the text looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing to battle. 
I'm emphasising the italics here, by the way, in case you're thinking I'm reading it oddly. It goes on, they had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. Through, in inverted commas, special insight, the author of this book determined that the locusts were, in fact, attack helicopters. The crowns of gold were the elaborate helmets worn by helicopter pilots, and the women's hair was the whirling propeller. Thus, the description of Apache, Cobra, and Comanche helicopters according to the author, is just a sample of the kind of descriptions John recorded in this mysterious book of prophecy. It is my belief that current events and technology can give us insights into the amazing book of the apocalypse that couldn't have been discerned in previous generations. This is the code that most effectively kept prophecy concealed until this time. All of these symbols help to so encode the message that only a spiritually alive person guided by the Spirit of God has been able to unlock its prophetic content. In other words, me. That is the author. He's the spirit guide, uh, spiritually alive person guided by the spirit. Now, I'm sorry, but that is just total nonsense. Now, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of the millennium stuff. We're going to think about that next week. But I want to start with this simple point that I think will avoid us falling into a trap, a key trap. And that is the notion that this book reveals a string of events. Okay, and that the period of the seals is followed by the period of the trumpets and the bowls and so on. Okay, now have a look at um, the various angles on the cycles. Have a look at how these three sections, and uh, they're on the sheet, uh, conclude and see how they compare. Okay? So do you see what you've got to do? Have a look at these verses, the six seals, trumpets, and bowls, okay? And have a look at those verses in brackets and see how they compare, all right? Can you do that just for a few minutes? Over to you. Okay. Uh, don't worry if you haven't got that, but the verses, in case you were confused, 8-1... 11, 15 to 18, 16, 17 to 21. Did you spot anything? Okay, well, maybe it'll be easy if you do it with the next set of verses. Okay. 14, verses 14 to 20, and then 19, verse 11 to 20, 15. So that's a huge chunk. But have a look and see what you come up with. All right? Don't despair. Keep going. It's on the book. So the final judgment verses. Now, I'm not expecting you to get it all completely sussed because these are puzzling verses, but I want you to try and grasp the big idea. See if you can get it. Okay, are you getting any sense of what's going on, or are you completely baffled? Now, when you start putting these together, and I'm, you know, I don't for one minute expect you to have sussed all the niceties and intricacies of these verses, but I do want you to try and grasp this, that actually, when you start putting them together, you find that they're talking about something absolutely cosmic and earth-shatteringly changing. And when you start putting them all together, you effectively find that each of the sevenths 
the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl, in different ways seems to be describing the same event, which is basically the end of the world or the climax of God's purposes and the beginning of his eternal reign. And so you begin to see that actually this cannot be something that gets repeated. So it doesn't make sense to see, if you like, um, human history panning out, or future history, if you can put it like that, panning out so that you have the period of the seals, and then when they're done, you move into a time of trumpeting, and then you move into a time of bowls. It doesn't make sense because each of the sevenths is cataclysmic. So it is better to see these series of events as concentric. In other words, they're happening at the same time, one on top of the other. So it's different angles or different metaphors, if you like, for the same series of events, effectively. Does that make sense? No. Um, Let me... If you turn... Ah, yes, very cunningly. Ha-ha. We have a picture. If you turn hopefully, to page 21. Uh, This is going to make your head hurt. But at the very least, what I want you to try and grasp is that these events all lead up to the same single event, but it's described in different uh, different, uh, ways. All right, so you see the sixth seal followed by the seventh seal, which is silence in heaven. Silence, presumably because there's nothing left to say or add, is effectively the same. As you look at the red boxes down the page, as the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. Do you see? And so it's not like a a consecutive sequence. It's simultaneous. Now, don't worry about this chart, because what I try to do is to try and work out how some of the things fit together more intimately And you can try and puzzle that out on your own later. But get the simple point that they're not about one after the other. They're all at the same time. Does that help to explain it? Is that better? The internal sequences. In a sense, what I'm trying to show with this dotted line and the question mark is that you could argue that the trumpets and the bowls fit in the gap between the fifth and the sixth seal. Uh, but don't bust a gut about that. Don't get too upset about it. It took me ages to just try and sort of play around with it and figure it out. But I think that is a way of thinking about it. But the important thing is they all end up in the same place at the same time. That's the important thing. And I think you can see this more clearly even with the other verses, the final judgment verses from chapter 14 and chapter 19, is they both seem to be describing the same moment. Do you see? Now, the confusion comes because in chapter 7, as, as we will see, in chapter 7, which is the green boxes, there's a bit of chapter 7 that comes before all these judgments, and there's a bit of chapter 7 that comes after the judge, uh, all these judgments. You know, when everything was signed and sealed and done, then there was the great multitude in heaven praising God, having been washed white and singing God's praises. All right? At the very least, you can hopefully see the problems with trying to just sort of identify 
um, a consecutive time sequence and try and pin it together with history. Because even if you, even if you could find sort of things that correspond, I don't know, to Saddam Hussein in Iraq or the Pope in the Middle Ages or whatever it is, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that you're going to be able to put it together with the other sections in this whole middle section of the book because they're not consecutive. They can't be, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, you're effectively having the second coming about four times. And in my mind, that's the clincher for me. That the second coming happens once. And the end of time and space and you know, this world and this age only ends, only ends once. Well, let's uh, move swiftly on. To help us get a grip, I think we need to use one of the songs that they sing uh, as a sort of launch pad for the whole of this middle section. And I'm deliberately doing it in two because I think there are, there's so much here, and yet to try and sort of break it down into bits is very difficult. So I'm taking it in huge sunk chunks this week and next week, which is why it'd be great if during the, the coming week you could read uh, this whole uh, section. But if you turn to chapter 15... And you have the Song of Moses and the Lamb. And uh, if you know um, the book of Exodus and uh, Exodus 15, then you will remember the song that uh, Moses and Miriam sang after they'd come out of Egypt. And uh, particularly they sang about the conquest of the Egyptian army. Do you remember in Exodus 15, after they crossed the sea, escaped from the army, and they sing this great song to the great God who rescued them. And and basically, the point there is that God is the only one who can take credit for it. Now, what is fascinating is that Revelation picks up not just the sort of the poetry of the original, but also the theology of the original. So, verse uh, 3, and sang, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, I think one of the things about this is that, and I think it's one of the reasons why we are nervous of the book of Revelation is because it sits uncomfortably with our sort of modern sensibilities. We in the West do not like the idea of judgment. And if you don't like the, the idea of judgment, you are in, inevitably going to struggle with the book of Revelation. It's unavoidable. And if you are someone who struggles with the idea, then you're certainly going to find it hard to understand why people would sing about it. Because that's what they're doing here. They're singing and rejoicing in it. Now, most of our praise songs these days hardly have anything to do with judgment. I'm thankful that actually there are more coming, and I think that is entirely right. But we do need to get under the skin of our sort of modern queasiness, I think. I think I've told this story in All Souls before, but it's worth repeating. In 1939, W.H. Auden emigrated to America. The poet, that is, W.H. Auden. Hopefully you've heard of him. And uh, in November 1939, just two months after the outbreak of the Second World War, uh, Auden went to a cinema in the Yorkville district of Manhattan, which 
uh, was largely German-speaking at that point. And the film was a Nazi account of the occupation of Poland. And when Polish people came onto the screen, Auden was absolutely rocked and uh, startled to hear the people in the audience around him shouting, Kill them! Kill them! He was stunned. And he is someone who had gone through all kinds of various changes of heart and mind and thought and worldview, but there's one thing that he had remained absolutely rock solid on throughout his life until this point. He believed in the absolute and essential goodness of humanity. He would have staked his life on it. But suddenly in a flash, he suddenly, he realized two things with the force of an epiphany. He realized this. On the one hand, he knew beyond any argument that human nature was not and could never be good. The reaction of the audience at that point was a denial of every humanistic value. But on the other hand, he realized that if he was to say such things were absolutely evil, and this is the point, he had to have some absolute standard by which to judge them. And at that point, Auden realized the fatal flaw of his liberalism. He said this, The whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine faith in the absolute. Or as he remarked to a friend at a later point, he said this, The English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against evil incarnate in Hitler have no heaven to cry to. And spurred on by this sort of contradiction and this yearning of what he knew had to be, Auden left the cinema on a quest to renew what he called his faith in the absolute and began the journey that led him to faith in Christ. I don't know whether you like Inspector Morse, but a few years ago in an episode there was a fascinating moment. So, you know, Inspector Morse grisly murders in Oxford. It makes Oxford the world capital for lethal and deadly decapitation and murder, which is slightly beyond the reality. But anyway, Oxford's a lovely place. But there's a telling moment where they're talking about, I can't remember what the crime was, but anyway, Lewis says to Morse, what do you think about God and that? Morse replies, I think there are times when I wish to God there was a God, A God who dispenses injustice. I'd like to believe in that. And he's not the only one. And I think he's got the point. You see, a world without judgment is terrifying. And I think we in the West have some rethinking to do. We need to see the righteousness and the rightness of judgment. And I suspect we don't want judgment only if we've not suffered or seen others suffer. Perhaps it'll help when we see some of the causes. So taking the two uh, two headings from this um, song in Revelation 15, the first heading is this, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Now, the causes of judgment, what I want to do is to sort of run through this whole section quite rapidly. But um, basically, in these uh, verses, you come up with a number of different reasons for judgment and why judgment is necessary. 
In chapter 12, verse 8, and chapter 13, verse 13, you have the deceits of the cosmic accuser. Satan means accuser, and he's a deceiver. And we're going to see much more clearly about how he deceives next week uh, when we think about what I've called the cosmic fraudster. But um, that must be judged. Lies must be shown up for what they are. God must judge that, mustn't he? If there are just plain falsehoods about reality, they've got to be exposed. And then in chapter 16, verse 2, there's the idolatry of beast worshippers, those who worship what is not God. That is, by definition, idolatry. And in chapter 16, verse 2, we find that, those, that there are plenty of people who worship the image of the beast. Again, we'll come back to that next week. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 16, you find that those who worship the lamb, in contrast to the beast, are martyred. And those are terrible things. I don't know whether you know anyone who was martyred. I guess if we did, we would cry to God for justice, wouldn't you? It can't just be left alone or just brushed under the carpet. I think the thing that keeps sticking in my throat with this is that Stalin died in his bed. Did you know that? He died in his bed. He committed more atrocities than Hitler did. (laughs) Millions more were killed as a result of his perverted ideology and whim. And, folks, he got away with it. Many, many brothers and sisters, as well as our fellow human beings, died at his hands. And he got away with it. Is that right? There's got to be judgment, hasn't there? Otherwise, it's pointless. Otherwise, it makes no difference. Otherwise, this universe is a cold, ruthless, heartless, vicious place. And God is puny and pathetic and far from worthy of worship, don't you think? But have a look at this one. It's probably one of the most incongruous and unsettling phrases in the entire Bible. Just turn to chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. I'll take it from verse 15. This is part of the sixth seal. From verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Have you ever heard that phrase before, the wrath of the Lamb? You see, the judgment is terrifying, yes, and, and, you know, Revelation, in common with many other parts of the Bible, does not pull any punches about the horror of it. But look who's doing it. This is the deliberate act of the one on the throne, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, you might expect the imagery of the lion to be judged. You know, the mighty Aslan bounding down the mountain with his mane flying and his eyes flashing in fire. But no, it's the Lamb that was slain. 
You see, because he is uniquely qualified to open the seals as the one who was slain, he is also uniquely qualified to judge sin. Now, that is entirely consistent with the rest of the New Testament, if not the whole Bible, isn't it? There should be no surprise at all that Jesus is the judge. Paul preaches that in Athens, doesn't he? Acts 17, and again, we looked at it very briefly on Sunday morning, if you were there, that actually God has declared to the world that this is the one by whom he has appointed judgment. And he's given proof of it by raising him from the dead. He is the judge. But think about it this way. If there has to be a judgment... Who would you rather do it? If we've agreed that judgment is necessary, there is no one else in whose hands I would rather it be done. Don't you think? He's not changed. He's not suddenly flipped and sort of lost it. It's still the same Jesus who walked this earth who knows our hearts and above all died for people that they might be saved from this. If anyone's qualified to do it, it must be him. And God has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. It's the very fact of him being the sacrificial lamb that gives us confidence that he's going to do a good job, don't you think? He can be trusted with this job. There will be no appeal courts because there will be no appeals necessary. Everybody will confess and admit that his judgment is right. Paul describes it in Romans as being, us being silenced before him because there is just no defense. And it's entirely consistent with what you find in the rest of the New Testament. I wonder if you realize that someone's worked this out, that there are 1,870 verses of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. The largest subsection or the largest proportion of those 1870 verses is about judgment. 13%, over 10% of all his teaching is about the one topic of judgment and hell. Second is angels. <laughs> and third is love. I don't know who worked those out or how, but whether they're sort of precisely accurate, I don't know. But it doesn't surprise me what comes out on top, because if you read his teaching, he's pretty clear. And actually, half of all his parables, the bits that people love, isn't it? You know, people always talk about Jesus' parables and being the sort of bedtime stories, and don't we all love the parables? But half of them are about judgment and hell. What about the, the bridesmaids, you remember? All those three parables in Matthew 25, they're all about Judgment. And the bridesmaids are not ready for it. And the bridegroom comes to the door and finds these five bridesmaids who are late. And he says, I'm sorry, I don't think we've met. And they're not allowed in. Jesus taught about this. Jesus, the lamb. That's why he died. He died so that he wouldn't have to say to people at the door, sorry, you're too late. Don't you think it's the two most terrible words in the English language. Too late. There's no going back from those two words, is there? The cruelest and most desperate words in the English language. Too late. 
Now, as we move on from this, we've got to remember that it's all in the context of the security of the people of God, as we saw before. God is on the throne. His people are secure in the face of terrible dangers and persecutions. So they are in Christ. They are safe. They are redeemed. They are there in that vision of, that um, John saw of the countless myriad of people. And Jesus gives them the confidence of what is to come so that they trust him. So what are the means of judgment? Well, you have in chapter 6 the horsemen of the seals, the so-called horsemen of the apocalypse. And there are four outcomes. Conquest, famine, anarchy, and death. And the events are gruesome, and certainly, and life under their sway is truly terrible. And the big question is, you know, what happens when they happen? Is it all at the end? Now, many have suggested, and again, if you take this book as leading us on a sort of merry path through human history, you will see that basically we're meant to see these things as happening just at the last minute before the wrapping it all up. But I would suggest, and actually today's news is a case in point, as we see what's been going on in Burma and uh, plenty of other places in the world, that actually these four things could equally describe our generation, don't you think? Wars and rumors of wars, to use Jesus' language in Mark 13. These have been humanity's companions for centuries. And what's more, these things are going on now. And if you don't believe me, just pick up a newspaper and read the whole thing, not just the back page. These are the experiences of the ages. And so I guess the best way to handle these and to understand them is in the context of what we find in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 1, where you find God handing people over to the consequences of their rebellion. That is his divine sovereign act of judgment. He says, fine, if that's the way you want to do it, you pay the price. And I think that what you find here is a description of what the last days are like. We then come to the next cycle of the trumpets. Now, these seem in some ways to be closer to the end than the seals, and so on that diagram I showed you, uh, you can look at later. Uh, I think these are placed later on. And one of the difficulties is, is in trying to distinguish between the judgments that seem to be going on the whole time, in the sort of Romans 1 sense, and the things that seem to be the immediate precursors of, of the return. But in some ways, I don't think it matters too much, and I really don't think we should get bogged down on it too much. What matters, and this is the crucial thing, is the certainty and reality of these things happening and the rightness of these things happening. I wonder if you realize this, and some of our American friends in this room, uh, I wonder if you knew this, that some words are written within the dome of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. These are the words, which is quite striking, bearing in mind the sort of fuss about separating church and state and all that sort of thing. But this is what it says in the Capitol building dome on the inside. One God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. To remind all those in power that they don't hold the last word in power. 
and that a day is coming when even they will give an account. Jim Packer says this, The entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of judgment. The fact that we don't necessarily know what date it is, is neither here nor there. Then we get the trumpets. Uh, By the time we get to the trumpets, the consequences are more devastating. We find that there is environmental catastrophe. And you see sort of the first four trumpets in terms of their effect on God's creation. The world that God had created to sustain life is now handed over to destruction and disaster. And then you find the human catastrophe in trumpets five to seven. People will long to die, but death will elude them. It is truly grim. Then later on, there are the seven bowls which carry the seven plagues, and we don't have time to get all into it at this time. But you will agree that the imagery and detail are very difficult for us to stomach. They are. You can't avoid that, and there's no point in me pulling the wool over your eyes. But please don't get bogged down with it. Sure, it repays study, and we should dig deep. But grasp this main point. John is drawing on the most important and reliable source known to him. I wonder if when you read it through, you'll um, see if it sounds a bit familiar. Because you see, these judgments are not new. You will find them elsewhere in the Old Testament. Can anyone work out where? Sorry? The book of Exodus. What in particular in the Exodus? The plagues. So you get a lot of the imagery from the Exodus plagues. And that impacts some of the prophets and the psalm writers who use plague imagery to describe God's judgment. Now, in a sense, if you're trying to describe something that is beyond human time and space and therefore beyond human vocabulary, the only thing you can do is to use the vocabulary and imagery from God's intervention in the past. Do you see? So the issue is not so much exactly what these experiences are going to be like. All we know is that they're going to be truly terrible. And uh, you can see it's in the back of the booklet on page uh, 22. What I'm trying to do there um, is to show how the, the trumpets and the bowls use imagery from the ten plagues in Exodus, but also Psalm 78, Psalm 105, and Amos 4. Now, yet again, showing that actually what you find in Revelation is nothing new. And you can work through that on your own at some point. But it's astonishing also how similar it all is to Mark chapter 13, which is sometimes called the little apocalypse, because it's basically Jesus giving some teaching about the last days, and there are a lot of similarities and parallels to what you find in Revelation. So again, you may find the book of Revelation weird and impenetrable and alien, but the more you get to know your Bibles, the more you'll see it is not unique nor original. So how do we respond to all this? Who will not fear you, O Lord, or bring glory to your name? The first thing to do is to repent. Chapter 9, verse 20. Rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. 
nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, you'd think they'd get the point, don't you? Now, do you remember there was a hoo-ha last year about Graham Dow, the Bishop of Carlisle, talking about the floods? Do you remember? And saying that uh, he was quoted as saying that they were God's judgment because of our sinful nation and the legislation going through Parliament and stuff. Now, he was, I'm pretty sure, I haven't seen the original text of what he said, I'm pretty sure that he was completely misquoted and taken out of context because I know that on the whole he's a pretty good guy. I think what he was trying to get at is the sorts of things that Revelation is getting at here in chapter 9. Because you see, the point is that when floods come or disasters come and there is tragedy and horror, we're meant to be thrown back to God. They're meant to be a spur to us. Now, it's not an invitation for us to say, oh, those people are more sinful. That's why they died in the floods. That's not the point. You remember Jesus was explicitly asked that question in Luke 13. There'd been a a tower that had fallen down and Jesus was asked, you know, is it because they were more sinful that they were killed? And Jesus says, absolutely not. But make sure you repent. Disaster reduces us to the helpless and dependent beings that we really are before God. If the cyclone and flooding and tragedy in Burma does nothing, it should surely remind us of that that we are not masters of our fate or captains of our soul. We are not lords of the universe. Only God is. Who do we think we are? We are not self-sufficient. We should repent. One of my favorite books on Africa is a book by a journalist called Michaela Rong, and she wrote a book about Congo, or Zaire, as it was named by President Mobutu, and she describes traveling through Mobutu's Congo. It's a book called In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, If you know your Joseph Conrad, you'll know what that means. But here she describes, for the first time, getting off uh, the riverboat on the Congo River uh, that's taken her right into the interior of the Congo. I don't know whether you realize that the DRC is the size of Western Europe. Absolutely huge. And she writes this. The feeling struck home within seconds of disembarking from the boat. When the motor launch deposited me in the cacophony of the quayside, engine churning mats of water hyacinth as it turned to head back across the brown expanse of water that was the River Zaire, I was hit by the sensation that so unnerves first-time visitors to Africa. It is that revelatory moment when white middle-class Westerners finally understand what the rest of humanity has always known that there are places in the world where the safety net they have spent so much of their lives erecting is suddenly whipped away, where the right accent, education, health insurance, and a foreign passport, all the trappings that spell it can't happen to me, no longer apply, and that their well-being depends on the condescension of strangers. Brilliant. We have a part to play in helping people to repent, don't we? We long for that to happen. We're not trying to get at them. We're not trying to impose ourselves on them. We're not trying to make ourselves feel big and important by having more catches to our bow. We're doing it because they're on the wrong track. Francis Schaeffer was a remarkable man. He set up the Labrie work in Switzerland, which Labrie is French word for shelter. And they would regularly have visitors staying with them the whole time. And um, 
students coming through or whatever. Uh, and over mealtimes, they would always have sort of theological discussions. And during one discussion, they ranged over a number of big, heavy theological issues. And suddenly, somebody asked Dr. Schaefer, what will happen, Dr. Schaefer, to those who've never heard of Christ? Everyone around the dinner table waited for the great theologian to deliver a weighty intellectual answer. But none came. Instead, he bowed his head and wept. We're called to discern. Chapter 13, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. There you go. (laughs) If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, wisdom is definitely required in the light of all the craziness of the last days. And here comes the number of the beast. It's not a barcode. It's not an identity card number that comes from being in the European Union. What 666 is, is less than perfection. The perfect number being 777. And we'll see next week how Satan can never get it right. He always tries to pull off the greatest con in cosmic history, but fails every time. He can never quite make it authentic. And that's what this symbolizes. And the point is here, the beast imitates and tries to garner for himself what is God's, and therefore we need always to be discerning, to see through the mask, to penetrate the charade, and to see what is true and is right, which is what we're going to do next week when we unmask his fraud. Chapter 13, verse 10. Again, it's a hard word, but no surprise in the face of the spiritual battle we face. Chapter 13, verse 10. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then chapter 14, verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Now remember everything we've seen. Jesus is the lamb on the throne, on the judgment seat. Therefore, whatever happens, he will win. He will get the judgment right because he has won. He's the lamb who died and rose to life and now rules. He's the one, as we we saw last week, who calls on his people not to be afraid, but to keep trusting him and therefore to endure. That is what you do. And if you're feeling you can't manage it, then you've understood. If you think this is beyond you, you're right. It is. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be killed for my faith. I don't want to suffer. And nor do you. I'm very nervous when there are some people who are quite gung-ho about it and say, well, I'll be, you know, have a sort of martyr complex. (laughs) There are even one or two in all souls. Let's not be naive. It is beyond us, and that is why we trust him, because he's the one who wins. When we endure, we keep trusting him. That's the point. But the good news is, is that he can take it. He can handle it because he's on the throne and in control. He's won. You getting the point yet? He's won, okay? You got that? I'm not sure you have. He's really won. He's already done it. He's defeated the enemy. He's won. It is finished, he cried on the cross. It's done. Don't look at me like that. It's happened. Finally, 
we praise. Even in the midst of the hardest and most difficult circumstances we could imagine. We've already seen that in Moses's, in the song of Moses and the Lamb. But then chapter 16, verse 4. In the midst of pouring out the bowls, we see the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Remember, that rings bells, doesn't it? The River Nile. Then verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you gave them blood to drink as they deserve. You are just in your judgments. Perhaps the simplest challenge of this week is to go away and praise God for his judgments. And if you find that hard, it's probably because you've underestimated the horror of sin. Whereas if you see how terrible it is and see what it does to people, then you'll think God's got to do something about it, don't you think? Repent, discern, endure, praise. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, again, we've covered much ground and things that are too big for us to grasp even in a lifetime, let alone one evening. Thank you for helping us tonight. We pray that in the coming days you'd help us to grapple and wrestle with these things more. But above all, Lord, we pray that we would be confident in the finished work of the Lamb confident in the rightness of his judgments because sin is terrible and it causes so much tragedy and it is an affront to you. Father, we're sorry for the ways in which we have contributed to that, that others have been victims of our own sin. We want to repent of that, Lord, to plead with you for forgiveness, trusting in the finished work of the cross. And we trust in the Lamb because he alone is able to sustain us through difficult days as well as straightforward days. And we pray that therefore we might go from here ready and willing to live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.